welcome to a special interview-based edition of the Bioethics Podcast. I'm Matthew Epinet, Assistant Director at the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. In this edition of the Bioethics Podcast, Dr. Joy Riley, Executive Director of the Tennessee Center for Bioethics and Culture, interviews Philippa Taylor, consultant on bioethics for the London-based organization CARE. Dr. Riley recently traveled to the United Kingdom and while there was able to record interviews both with Philippa Taylor and with Dr. Callum McKellar of the Scottish Council on Human Bioethics. Watch for the interview with Dr. McKellar in a future episode of the Bioethics Podcast. For now, though, Dr. Riley. Hello, this is Dr. Joy Riley. I'm sitting in the living room of Philippa Taylor in Stanford, England. Philippa is the consultant on bioethics to the charity CARE in the UK, and I'm so glad you could join us today, Philippa. Thank, Thank you. you. Why don't you tell us a bit about your job and about CARE, particularly, please? Okay. Um, well, I'm a consultant, as you said, on bioethics, um, and I've been mainly working for one charity, and I've been doing that for about, I guess, about 13 years now. Um, and I originally started working for them um, full-time, and I now work part-time because I've got children as well. Now, CARE is uh, a charity. It's based in central London, and um, it has two kind of main areas um, that it works in. It does a lot of um, practical initiatives, um, practical caring initiatives, um, such as running about 150 pregnancy crisis counselling uh, centres um, and various other practical caring initiatives. And then we also do quite a lot of public um, policy work, which is effectively campaigning um, in Parliament. So we're based in Westminster, just around the corner from Parliament, and um, a lot of the work that we are doing is really centred on trying to influence and um, change public policy, so working with MPs but also civil servants and um, various other people who have influence. And what particularly is your role as a consultant? Are you primarily a writer, a speaker or some other job description? Um, I do a bit of everything really. I do, I mean mainly I'd say research and writing and my two kind of um, main things that I do. But that has involved um, quite a lot of speaking over the years at uh, different events. Um, but also I'm quite involved in um, direction and strategy and um, sort of policy issues more than just researching and writing on them. So it's fairly broad, really. So if, and, and sometimes media stuff as well. I've done a fair bit of media um, involvement in press releases or interviews or whatever. So, so it's quite broad, really. I'm kind of the expert on bioethics within care. So I don't, because I'm working from home, I don't do all the direct campaigning, but I'll kind of influence and inform those who are involved in the campaigning. One of my other roles in care, which is actually something I'm going to be spending more and more time on, is really trying to get Christians involved um, and informed on these issues, um, because the church and individual Christians, especially those GPs, doctors, physicians, as you'd call them, um, nurses, uh, palliative care um, carers, um, many and many involved in the media really know very little about these issues, and yet they can have a huge influence in their local communities, um, even local media as well. So I think it's really important that we get churches and individual Christians involved and informed on these issues, and understanding some of the key ethical um, dilemmas around them. I mean, obviously many will also be impacted personally um, from IVF, but there are so many debates in, in, in the media at the moment on television. Uh, Robert Winston is uh, doing a, a series of 
several high-profile programs on um, uh, on IVF treatment, fertility treatments, where we've been, where we're going, um, and the media covers it a lot. So I think it's really important for for Christians to get really involved in this and try to influence um, the debate. So that's one of my jobs really is trying to inform Christians through website and. Um, Articles that we write, um, things of Christian publications, that kind of stuff. So, um, but also the other thing that Care does, it, Care is because it's a charity. We have um, a lot of support. I think about a hundred thousand supporters, whatever. Um, so part of my role is to inform our supporters on topical issues um, in bioethics and other areas that I'm involved in. So that's another key area that I do. So it's quite a lot of information provision for people too. Yesterday, you attended the 25 years of stem cells at Cambridge University. Can you uh, talk a bit about that and about where you see bioethics going in the next year and five years in the UK? Yeah, well, it was an interesting conference, um, slightly more technical than I'd expected, but um, it was interesting to observe some of the key players um, in bioethics, in the stem cell field, actually, and um, hear their perspectives. And they took it right back to their involvement from, you know, obviously 25 years ago. So it was interesting to see how, the, how long it's taken for the work to get where it is. Um, and there's obviously been a core group of people who've been highly involved for a long time, um, but not having a huge amount of success, I'd say, sort of publicly or public acknowledgement, um, until literally the last probably six or so years, um, when they've all become very well known um, in their field. And it felt a bit like a kind of, almost a sort of club there of um, key researchers who all know each other, who've all worked together for years, um, and who network very closely. Um, and. Uh, are highly influential, really, in the stem cell field. So they were all just talking about kind of the their own involvement over the last 25 years. Um, and then we also heard from, particularly interesting was from um, Bob Edwards, who's kind of perceived here as the father of IVF, um, and hearing his views and uh, ethics, or kind of from my perspective, lack of ethics perhaps, on uh, uh, on his work. Um, and uh, yes, it was, I found it a slightly, well, I found it, um, a bit unsettling, really, in that uh, there just is very little um, ethics involved. Um, the embryo is literally an entity to be used in whatever possible way, um, without any real thought to any sense of life at all, or even potential life within the embryo. So it's a it's a sad thing in some ways, but it was it was interesting to be there. This was called uh, the conference was called Twenty Five Years of Stem Cells at Cambridge University, and were you surprised or um, not surprised regarding the subject at hand. I heard one observer say she was quite surprised that it only seemed to entail embryonic stem cells. So was this a surprise for you? Uh, well, I think it's a surprise. <laughs> Once you get all of those kind of people together, um, they really have very little interest, it seems to me, in anything other than embryo stem cell research. I mean, as uh, one of them said, it's just there's no, it, it seems to me that attitude is that embryo research is the only way to go and they won't even kind of contemplate using adult stem cells or um, umbilical cord um, stem cells, which is, I mean, as you and I probably agree, is a real shame because actually it seems to me that there's an enormous amount of potential, um, therapeutic potential for the use of other stem cells um, and yet it doesn't seem to be something that interests them at all. Um, so it, it doesn't surprise me, over here in the UK, um, that's very much the attitude in um, in in, in, the, in public life, really, from media through to 
um, Parliament through to the researchers and scientists. The attitude is very much, let's do what we can over here, let's keep right ahead of the rest of the world and all this kind of stem cell work. And the way to go has to be through using embryos. And uh, the law is obviously increasingly allowing that to take place. Um, and there's very, very little debate in the UK, um, or hardly acknowledgement really, of other sources, ethical sources of stem cells. It's, um, it's not an easy place to be someone who disagrees with the mainstream view, really. So, so yeah, disappointing, but not a surprise at all. Um, it was a shame there's not an opportunity for questions either in a place like, in a, a kind of conference like that, because there's really no opportunity for anyone to express any other view other than those espoused by the speakers, um, which is sad because that kind of hinders any kind of debate, really. As you look ahead in the next year to five years, where do you see the bioethics debate in the UK going? Uh, particularly, uh, not only stem cells, but in other issues. Uh, what are the glaring issues coming down the pike, if you will, for okay. the UK? Well, as soon as I didn't completely answer one of your earlier questions, I'll go back for the sort of last the years that I've been involved in and just show how it's progressed. It's probably very similar to the States, but over here, and I got involved about uh, 13 or so years ago, and I was very much involved in um, working on abortion, working with the pregnancy um, crisis counselling centres, um, interviewing women who'd been involved in abortion, doing lots of work on euthanasia because that was a big issue in Parliament at the time, um, with lots of debates in the House of Lords on that, um, and also uh, doing some work on infertility treatments, IVF. Um, and that was really the mainstay of my work kind of back then. And then gradually got more and more involved in genetics as that kind of came up as a field, um, and embryo screening, PGD, that um, started to kind of raise its head much more as an issue. Um, sex selection was kind of always bubbling along there as well um, as an, an issue. Even 10 years ago, there was a big consultation on that, which was repeated just much more, much more recently, a, few years, a couple of years ago, um, looking at that. So that's been an ongoing issue. But it was interesting, about five years ago, we started to see that actually um, cloning was quite likely to be a possibility. Um, and, uh, well, it's probably more than five years ago that we thought of that. And then, lo and behold, about two years after we started to talk about it, it kind of came onto the scene with, with Dolly. And so really for the last five years, cloning has been the big issue. Cloning, stem cell research, tied up with embryo research, tied up with um, embryo screening as well on all these issues. Probably about three years ago, 2003, I started to think much more about some of the newer issues coming over the horizon and wrote some papers, some briefing papers for care. Um, one on transgenics, which is the mixing of animal and humans, um, genes and chromosomes. Um, and then also looking at nanotechnology and cybernetics and the kind of enhancement of humans through mechanical devices, through pills and um, chemical and chemical methods, um, and artificial intelligence looked at. Um, so those three issues I kind of thought actually, and they're, and they're really very much issues now um, to be thinking about um, for, uh, for kind of key ethical issues that are coming over the horizon. But the other one is really very much this... Um, I still think the stem cell debate has a, has a long way to run. I think that's an, a, an ongoing issue, a big issue. It has a lot of spin-off key issues like the use of um, eggs from women. Um, and, uh, and it's tied up quite, quite closely, obviously, with the chimera debate as well, and parthenogenesis and lots of other issues around the, the embryo. So that's still very much an issue I see for the future, um, as well as the kind of cybernetics and nanotechnology issues. I would like for you to deal with the egg donation issues for a moment. This year, the HFEA took the unusual step of approving 
egg donation with uh, for an exchange, um, an exchange for free or at least reduced price in infertility care. They took the unusual step of approving this before consultation was held. Yeah, they well, they did. They they didn't. They they approved two licenses. They granted two licenses for two clinics, really, um, to carry that out because they're desperate for eggs. Because obviously, the law in this country allows um, embryo research and cloning research, primary research, and, and uh, various other types of research. So actually, they need a lot of eggs, and they've got allowed two um, centres to do that. Um, but then, having done that, they then decided actually there probably needs to be a public consultation on this issue. So they've literally just finished um, a few weeks ago uh, a public consultation on whether this should be allowed. So it's a bit after the horse has bolted, but um, and, and one suspects that they'll probably be permitted, but uh, be able to say then that they've done the public consultation, so it's all okay. <laughs> um, so it, I mean, it's a, a very frustrating because it make, makes it very difficult to actually influence the process because it can, it's kind of going on behind closed doors. And um, the only opportunity we have really is is saying when there's public consultation and then just working behind the scenes um, with people just to try and get the the issue raised in the public public eye. So we've worked hard at trying to get to get supporters to respond on it and, and things and uh, and raise it in the media. We sent out press releases, but you know, once it's actually been once the license has been granted. It's very difficult. That's when all the media fusses, and it's very difficult to influence at that point, and it's also very difficult to influence in hindsight. So, but the HFEA did also do a consultation about two years ago on giving money um, to um, women who donate eggs because obviously it's allowed for sperm donation. Um, and again, they they sort of try to a little bit to take the middle ground on that, so um, allow sort of a maximum, with, which is quite a large maximum sort of for expenses. Um, and that's sort of technically been permitted, um, but I don't think it's a it's not a particularly common procedure. So, in America, we have uh, a saying that it's easier to ask forgiveness than for permission, <laughs> and so it sounds like the HFEA has discovered that as well. Very <laughs> true. And the HFEA is actually going through quite a lot of um, potential changes at the moment. There's going to be a new bill going through um, Parliament to uh, change. Or to reform it, change the structure in some way. They're, they're talking about introducing a new body called RATE. Um, I can't remember what that stands for now, but that will kind of incorporate the HFEA and I think the Human Tissues Authority as well. Um, so there will be a chance for kind of potential re reform of it, um, but I suspect it's not going to make a huge difference in the long term really about things like granting of licenses. And you might want to tell our American listeners about the HFEA. That's not a common um, yeah. name for us. The Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority. In 1990, there was a big debate in Parliament and they passed um, an act. Basically, a lot of um, work was happening on IVF and there was very little to regulate it. Um, and all the laws were quite old. So they had a commission of inquiry under Warnock, Mary Warnock, who you may have um, heard of, um, called the Warnock Committee. And they produced some recommendations which went through um, Parliament, were debated in Parliament. And then they passed a law called the HFEA Act, the Human Fertilisation and Biology Act. And that basically, one of the things that did was set up an authority to regulate all IVF. And they basically do two things. They regulate research on embryos. So any research that is done on an embryo up to 14 days um, has to have a licence from the HFEA. They also regulate IVF treatment. So any all the main IVF treatment in this country um, that involves sperm and eggs and embryos um, has to be regulated again through the HFEA. So they give licences to clinics and collect money from clinics. So 
in fact the clinics mostly fund the HFEA um, but um, but that's a key part of what they do so they produce data tables and league tables and things like that on, on uh, IVF treatment and how is uh, or how was the determination that embryo research could be done up to 14 days post-fertilization done? Was that um, uh, scientifically based? Was that uh, Did that come out of the Warnock Committee or in what way did that uh, originate? Um, the, the, the main origination really was from the Warnock Committee where they had a debate on it um, and um, it was clear when they were debating that actually they didn't have a, a a good point at which to kind of draw the line. They couldn't think of a good report, a point themselves. I and mean, obviously we would say it would, should be conception. That's the clearest line, but they didn't want to use um, the line of conception. They wanted to actually be um, able to permit research to take place, and the majority did. So they tried to find um, or draw a line at some point, and they think they chose the 14-day limit based on that was the beginning of um, the nervous system development. Um, so that was their kind of main basis for choosing that. But then obviously within the committee they had to have, have a debate on it. Um, and interesting, I, mean, I can't remember exactly how many on the committee, something like 14 on the committee, and there was, it was something like 7 to 6, or 13 on the committee, 7 to 6 in favour of um, embryo research. It was either one or three um, people over the, um, that voted for it. So it was, uh, basically it was very close in Warnock. But then it went to Parliament, and again lots of debates, um, lots of procedural wrangling there and uh, sort of clever pulling of um, votes and procedures that actually did, uh, did allow it in Parliament as well. So it got written into law at that point. But um, you know, a, a lot of it, when it gets to Parliament, it does tend to, it, there's a lot of political playing and manoeuvring that goes on. Um, so actually votes can be pulled one way or other, not necessarily through whether it's what people want, it's more through you know, people negotiate. Uh, so basically, the Warnock Committee did not have um, legislative ability. They were simply advisors, consultants? Um, yeah, set up potential regulations, yeah, they were kind of advisors. So they basically produced a report which was the basis for draft legislation. So once the draft legislation, so that basically is almost the draft legislation, but that was set up. Once the draft legislation is in place, then it all has to be voted on um, in Parliament. But the voting procedure takes quite a long time because it goes not just through the House of Commons and Lords, it also goes through committee stages as well, where they debate on it in committees and sort of put it apart and look at every little bit of it. So it's quite a long process um, and a lot of changing can go on in that process. Um, but yeah, the fundamental basis was out of the Warnock Report. Quite a legacy, no? Yeah. Well, I think we saw some of the effects of that yesterday oh, at the Stem Cell yeah, Conference. Yeah. Well, well they, they would probably argue um, that it's probably too restrictive at the moment. The, the laws, they would say that, you know, we've moved on a lot now. It was too restrictive in, in, in the past and it's even more restrictive. It's tying us down too much. Because although a lot of research happens in this country, um, it's permitted, um, much more so than in many other countries, there are still some limits. So the HFEA does still say no to some things. It does have to inspect and uh, follow up um, clinics and centres. Um, and, you know, in the last... Um, the last government's uh, recommendations that have just come out based on um, some work by the Department of Health where they've been looking at the HFEA Act and all the current laws in the country, they have come up with some stuff that I wouldn't be very happy with in permitting um, some sorts of research um, like chimeras, chimeric research in the future, stem cell research, embryo research obviously for more reasons, embryo screening for more reasons, but at the same time they've also recommended no sex selection for social reasons. Um, and they have recommended some other limits as well. So, 
Yeah, and in the past, the HFEA have stood against some other things as well, which has been good. And uh, so it's not all completely bad. At least there are some regulations in this country. It's not a complete free for all by any means. So those who are scientists, I think, would probably argue that actually it's too restrictive for them. Um, well, we would argue that it's it's too liberal for us. Um, so, but I think we can be grateful that at least there's some laws, although not nearly as strong as we'd like. And, and often, actually, interestingly, the laws are um, changed or amended not on ethical reasons or necessarily even scientific, but on public perception. So if the HFEA thinks the public can cope with the change in their law, um, then they will. And I suspect the sex selection, is, for social reasons, has not been allowed yet, simply because the public aren't quite ready for it, um, rather than the fact that it's not the right thing to do you know, as an absolute principle. So the HFEA very much goes to public opinion on these issues. I see. Well, then that would make your work extremely important in impacting the public debates and as well as policy. Yeah, yeah. Although that's a hard thing in this country where there's a very much a um, sort of a, a liberal elite which is very uh, closely linked and networked. It's quite hard to break in. But someone like Josephine Quintavalli has done extremely well in, in networking and, and breaking in and, and having a big influence really um, in policy and in media as well. Mm. Well, Philippa Taylor, thank you very much for joining us today. And this is the uh, end of our interview with Philippa Taylor, consultant to CARE, Bioethics and Family Issues. That was Dr. Joy Riley, Executive Director of the Tennessee Center for Bioethics and Culture, interviewing Philippa Taylor of CARE. You can visit the website of Dr. Riley's organization, the Tennessee Center for Bioethics and Culture, at TennesseeCBC.org. And CARE's website is care.org.uk. The Bioethics Podcast is a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity is a nonprofit 501c3 organization exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, C bhd.org has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the Center and to support the work of the Center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website, cbhd.org. My name is Matthew Epinet. I'm the Assistant Director at the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. I'd like to hear your thoughts about the Bioethics Podcast. Write to me at Matthew at cbhd.org. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast.